Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, nothing about the past year has seemed normal. A global pandemic, widespread lockdowns, what could be seen as a medical miracle with vaccine creation. But then, of course, there's the market angle. We had the quickest fall into a bear market on record, and that was then followed by a historic comeback. But according to our guests, we're now in the midst of an expansion just like any other, just likely a shorter one. He'll explain. And of course, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And by all means, if you saw something crazy, give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 and let us know what crazy thing you saw. Leave us a voicemail and maybe we'll play it on the show. Uh, And Sarah, I trust you have a crazy thing. You had two weeks, uh, a week off there to prepare. So I, I expect you to bring it this week. Yeah, so I, I brought you two crazy things this week. I might even throw in a third if you're lucky, but for everyone listening, I know you demanded it, and we did get the demand on our ratings on Apple Podcasts. So luckily, you don't just have to stick around today for the crazy things. You also get to stick around for one of Mike's nicknames. Yes, how, how exciting that is. Remember, this holding is, him to it. This is not the high value nickname. I'm I'm holding out for 200 ratings to give the high value nickname. This we're this getting is, there. This is a bargain nickname. It's a flattering nickname to me. So uh, keep those ratings coming. I think we're at 170 something now. So we get to 200. I'll deliver the really embarrassing nickname for, for at all this rate. Things. At this rate, Mike, give it, give it a week. Give it a week. Just so you can all roast me on Twitter. I know that is the entire purpose of this, which is fine. That's, that's as it should be. But uh, new guest and we won't roast him on Twitter anywhere else. We're, we're very happy to have him first time on the show. He is the chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. His name is Marco Pepich. Marco, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Marco, let's start. Let's talk a little bit about the Clock Tower Group um, and tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what kind of work you do for them. I know the main business is sort of seeding new hedge funds, right? Um, so so tell us about what else the, the company does and what your role is. We're an alternative investment management firm. So we, we do several things. We we seed hedge funds, uh, macro discretionary hedge funds. We also um, have a uh, seeding platform actually in China with onshore managers there. Uh, we also are doing uh, private investing, specifically in fintech space, uh, but we're also looking to expand uh, from there as well. So there are several sort of business lines that we have. We have great relationships we've built over the last 20 years with institutional investors, and we really listen to our clients. 
Uh, we hear what they are looking to do. And um, we, you know, we claim to be able to uh, answer most of their challenges and deliver with some innovative business uh, ideas and, and investment products. So just to expand on that a little bit, how do you go about deciding uh, where to send money to if you're seeding hedge funds? I mean, how do you go about doing that process? You know, um, it requires a real in-depth knowledge of the industry and I think also of um, where the young talent is. I mean, that's a fundamental uh, fundamental issue. I mean, um, you have to know how to kind of have a draft board. Think about like a professional sports team. You Throughout the season, you're looking at the, the college studs coming through the program and you're looking at where they are and, and how they rank. Um, so that's one part of the process. It's very difficult because, of course, the industry, I mean, it's not like you have statistics of hedge fund portfolio managers somewhere publicly available. <laughs> but you also have to know where the sport is going. You know, so you have to know kind of whether uh, three-point shooters are more likely to succeed or you need big big guys rebounding. So there's also that component where we have to constantly be thinking, where is macro going? Uh, and so I guess my role is not really on the former. You know, I'm, I'm not really a, like a talent scout. I enjoy talking to really smart people and hopefully I can add value there. But uh, my expertise really is on the latter. So kind of thinking where the macro industry is going, where are the trends? Do you want to see someone who is an expert in emerging markets, distressed debt, more classical macro? You know, those are questions we also have to ask ourselves. You can't quite say that you have a five-star rating or a four-star rating uh, quarterback or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, we don't, you know, you don't have that, but you got to keep your ear to the ground and kind of figure out who's, who's out there, who's, who, who's good. So you're on Wall Street bets, uh, looking for traders. I assume that I'm I'm just kidding, of course. No, no, no. Actually, I think my eight year old uh, son, you know, could could be good. Next, next one up. He played a lot of computer games. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But let's get to that point. Then your role, as Sarah mentioned, um, yeah, you have an interesting take on on what we can expect from this economic cycle. Uh, it's going to be like a normal cycle, just shorter. Uh, and you wrote in, in a recent note, you know, this augurs for a more volatile, manic and brief bull market. Talk us through that a little bit. How do you see that unfolding and kind of, you know, what inning are we in now in, in your view of, of this expansion and bull market? You know, let me first give you sort of a sense of where I'm coming from in terms of my competency. Um, I, I feel that my kind of methodological bias is probably political analysis. So that's mm -hmm. where I, I cut my teeth at um, on sell side research. And so when I look at what happened in the last expansion and I sort of try to figure out why was it as prolonged, uh, tepid, why was it all about secular stagnation? I call it the Charlie Brown expansion because it was always kind of depressed. Um, <laughs> so why? A lot of people give you a lot of really complicated answers like, oh, people are getting old demographics, you know, technology is deflationary. So, yeah, OK, maybe to me, it was very simple. Uh, politics flipped in 2010. And we got this huge push towards austerity, not just in the U.S. with the Tea Party, but even with David Cameron in, the, uh, in Europe, uh, Merkel, of course, uh, everywhere. Only really in 2012 could you say that Abenomics kind of moved a little bit against that. But there was this big political consensus that we had to tighten our belts because, well, households did. So the governments had to do the same. And I think that was a huge component of prolonging the recovery, making it you know, tap it, make, uh, ensuring that the output gap could uh, continue to be uh, basically open and not closed. I think that this time around, it's very clear that we're in a different paradigm. And so I think that we're probably done, I would say with, you know, I don't know, I'm just 
throwing this out there, but like 20, 25% of this recovery, I think is behind us. Ask me again in 12 months, maybe I'll reassess. I think we have two stimulus programs coming through using reconciliation, which is novel. And we can talk about why that's novel. Uh, I think they're going to be huge. I think there's going to be no revenue offsets. This, this fantasy that there'll be corporate tax increases likely will not happen. So we're just going to have unadulterated, high-powered spending. That makes this, I think, meaningfully different from the previous expansion. And I will say, of course, Marco, you have a book. It's called Geopolitical Alpha, and it was ranked one of the best books by Bloomberg of uh, 2020. So if you're intrigued, definitely check it out. So with that said, I mean, with the flip that we have seen, of course, there's a lot of spending coming down the pipeline. If this is, yes, it's a faster expansion, but then it also means it's a shorter expansion. What is it then that is the nail in the coffin? What is it that actually ends the expansion? If it's faster yet also shorter, you have to assume the end comes sooner as well. Yes. And I, and I think eventually uh, we do run out of uh, fiscal policy um, at some point. Uh, and I think that sort of my... My mental framework for this would be the short and quick recessions that happened after the Korean War or World War II, where you had a fiscal cliff recession. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, speaking on February 18th, 2021, I would say 2023 looks like potentially the end, end line. I think in 2022, we'll get another $2 trillion stimulus package infrastructure deal. Um, and I think by 2023, after the midterms, it's, it's unlikely that we'll be able to keep up with this high watermark we've now established in terms of fiscal spending. Uh, but, you know, that's a very low conviction view. Uh, all I know is that for the next two, you know, two years, it's like diamond hands and to the moon. <laughs> you know, like, I, I got nothing else to tell you other than that. And let me tell you one more thing. Yeah. Let me tell you one more thing just really quickly. I think uh, think about it this way. Okay, let's listen. Let's say we're listening to your podcast, amazing podcast, which everyone should listen to. Let's say that we're listening to your podcast in a car and we pull up to the uh, takeout window. All right. But I like to listen to your podcast at 3x. Okay. I don't know if anyone does that, but let's say I do. <laughs> and so what I'm saying about this cycle is it's like listening to you guys. And then suddenly at the takeout window, I realized they forgot my fries. They didn't put the milk I wanted in my coffee. And I'm arguing with, you know, like, whatever. I, I get that done. Who has fries and coffee together? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, you, you have a tough day. You need energy and, I guess, whatever, carbohydrates. Anyways, my point is that what happens is that when you come back to the podcast, you've missed meaningfully more of that podcast than you did if you listen to it at 1x. And I think that's the difference between this cycle and the previous one. If you're sitting on the sideline, being cautious because of valuations, this or that, waiting for a correction, three months on the sidelines, it's like nine months in the previous cycle. Yeah, I do have a friend who listens to it, I think, at like one and a half times speed. And then every time he sees me, Sarah, he's like, you, you know, when I talk to him, he's like, you, you actually talk right? slow. You don't see, you don't see right. Yeah, you so. don't have the same energy that you usually do when I hear you on your podcast. <laughs> your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
Marco, I, I wonder, you know, a, a, another uh, thing you've written a little bit about is is inflation, the outlook for inflation. I wonder how that fits into the sort of uh, inevitable death of, of the, the expansion cycle. You know, this sort of uh, stereotype that's probably true of, true of most times is that, you know, the, the central banks typically snuff out uh, expansionary times, uh, reacting to inflation uh, and, and raising interest rates. Um, and I think you make a good point. Uh, you say that there's obviously going to be this second quarter bump in inflation as the, the world kind of gets back to normal. And, you know, you have some, you know, comparisons to prices last year that that were obviously uh, deflated because of the pandemic. So you think central banks will dismiss that sort of outlier of a, a big, hot second quarter inflation. Um but you do think it's it's coming. Uh, you you point out to uh, maybe oil going to eighty eighty dollars a barrel. So is it is that going to be a, a typical sort of boom and bust scenario as, as past cycles? That ultimately it's the central banks that sort of ruin the party. And you know how fast do we have to worry about inflation and the reaction function from central banks if not the second quarter? Yeah, so definitely that could be part of the calculus. And I think 2023, again, could be a moment when central banks realize that they kind of made a mistake. Um, mathematically, Ceteris Paribus, I completely understand why they're saying it's transitory, but inflation is not a monetary phenomenon. It's not even a mathematical phenomenon. It's as many, in many ways, a psychological phenomenon. And I'm just not sure how economic agents, you know, households and CEOs are going to react to this coming, quote unquote, transitory uh, bout of inflation. I think they will react, uh, and this is just my, you know, basically educated guess, but I think they'll react by uh, forwarding their purchases to the present from the future. Um, so that's that's the first part of this. Now, to your question of does that then bring the end of the cycle? I think, yes, I think you can add that to sort of the soup with the fiscal thrust argument. But I am not sure how fast it will happen. And, and here's here's where I would kind of add a political lens to this. Um, they told us what they want to do. Central bankers have told us they want higher inflation. It is the easiest way. And I know most investors don't like to hear this because they're savers. But it's the easiest way to kind of redistribute wealth and to deal with uh, because because a lot of people are indebted at very high levels. Of course, provided that wages rise as well, which I think they will. So I think that this is something that's coming by policymakers. I think they'll delay the kind of acts of central banking that comes and cuts um, inflation in its tracks. I know that we know how to do it. I know that Paul Volcker did. But Paul Volcker was a man of the moment. And he managed to fight and, and you know, swat away inflation through two recessions that increased unemployment. I just don't see any willingness to impose pain on the median voter at this point. And so I think that we will look through inflation longer than most investors probably think. So so speaking of inflation and looking at commodities, I mean, Mike mentioned how you said oil could go to $80 a barrel. Of course, this past week was a remarkable week in the United States. In Texas, we had the freeze. We saw oil prices shoot through $60 a barrel, uh, West Texas Intermediate for, for the first time in a year. So is this just the beginning? And obviously, that that's on the supply side of the equation. But what comes next to really push oil higher? Is, is it the recoveries, the vaccine roll-up, things getting back to normal? And then what does that mean for the inflation picture overall? You know, Sarah, I mean, it's all of those, all of the above. You know, so um, I also think geopolitical tensions you can add in there, too. Um, you know, the sort of uh, the hope of a quick supply 
shock, positive supply shock because of a Biden administration is dissipating. Um, Iran elections mid-year, it's unlikely we get a deal. I mean, there's a very complicated situation, but I think fundamentally, um, one of the most ironic and paradoxical uh, kind of effects of the ESG sustainability push is that many energy companies just do not want to put CapEx into very expensive projects. And so I, you know, like you have demand, which is basically stable around 90 million barrels uh, a day globally. And if CapEx doesn't produce four to six million new barrels uh, a year of of production to replace depleted oil wells, you can't meet that demand. So we could have a meaningful problem when demand does recover to global kind of average demand and uh, CapEx doesn't show up to replace the usual depleted barrels that just happened through well depletion. So that's the first issue. I think the second issue and what it means for inflation, it's tricky. So I would actually say oil price increases over the longer term are deflationary, if not accompanied by uh, commensurable increases in wages. And this is really tough for economists and market participants to uh, forecast. Like, how do you forecast wage increases? You know, the Phillips curve hasn't really helped in any way. There's all sorts of ways in which we don't really know where kind of wage pressures are going to come from. But I think there are two things that are happening right now. One, many labor unions are seeing in this crisis an opportunity to renegotiate. And two, um, you have a real problem in many major cities in the U.S. as an example where, you know, schools are not going to open uh, for a long time. And so if women can't and they've been uh, disproportionately hurt by this crisis, if they can't get back into the labor force, they're an incredibly important input into the service economy of the U.S., which is 70 percent. And that will boost wages as well, I think, in, in, in parts of the economy that haven't really seen much wage pressures. Putting all of this together, I think trying to figure out if wage pressures show up over the next 12 months is a critical component into figuring out whether any inflationary impact of commodities is sustainable. And I would lean towards, yeah, there will be wage pressures. Uh, you know, uh, Marco, sticking in your wheelhouse there of uh, geopolitics, um, there was one line in uh, the notes we got from you that that I'm going to be honest, it kind of scared my my shoes off here. Uh, so, so of course, you know, I have to read that, uh, Sarah. This this the scary stuff you got to bring up. But let Scare me everyone let me, shoes off. Let me just read this. It sells. This it sells. <laughs> it sells. Right. Preach, Fear, fear <laughs> sells. Yeah. Um, So you write that the odds of a military confrontation with the U.S. are rising as China achieves greater energy independence and gains a critical footprint in the global renewable supply chain. Um, I'm just glad I'm above the draft age when I read something like that. But but unpack us uh, that for us a little bit. Um, I guess the argument is that um, China's becoming so competitive globally in technology, green energy. Recently, we, we even saw headlines about China uh, does not want to export rare earth uh, materials to the U.S. because they can be used in military uh, projects, that sort of thing. Unpack that for us. Is that basically it, that that the trade and economic competition is getting so fierce between China and the U.S. that this uh, necessarily raises the odds of, of an actual uh, uh, military conflict? Let me step back. I, I actually, um, you know, I've had a view on this for a very long time. So I started my career in finance by basically trying to make politics and geopolitics investment relevant to my clients. 
And one of the frustrating things in 2011, 2012, 2013 is that nobody was paying attention to Asia. Really, nobody. And especially in Singapore and Hong Kong, they would like throw you out of the office if you said, well, I think China, U.S. tensions could. Ah, no, no, no. It's yeah. all about, you know, ISIS. Just, it's all about you. Tell me about Greece. Yeah, tell me about Greece. And so that was very frustrating for me. And I was trying to explain why there is this, you know, uh, um, very, very theoretical, very political science based problem between U.S. and China that's been identified before Graham Ellison wrote that great book, Thucydides Trap, and so on and so on. However, I think there's two things that are going on right now. Too many people are linearly extrapolating the last 10 years into the future. And so they're extrapolating using the only mental framework they have, which is the Cold War. So ironically, Mike, I'm actually going to kind of disagree with you and agree with you at the same time. I would say that the trade tensions, the economic tensions are likely going to surprise to the downside. You know, and and why? Well, because um, we don't live in a bipolar world where the Soviet Union and the U.S. can carve up the planet in two neat spheres and then tell their allies, play nice or we'll punish you. We live in more of a 19th century kind of a world, which is exciting. It's uh, swashbuckling. Uh, there's, there's a lot of messiness and geopolitical volatility, and it's going to be very difficult for U.S. to keep its allies in check and China to do the same. And in that world, it's going to be very difficult to actually have a clean break. Now, I fully expect the Biden administration to be very tough on emerging technologies, high tech, and so on, for sure. But I think the tariffs and blanket um, decoupling is unlikely to happen. And we saw that last year, by the way, at the height of the uh, trade war, you know, we had massive inflows into China, into the bond market. That was one of the num- uh, like number one favorite trades for many investment uh, institutional investors and so on. So that's the first part of this. You can have geopolitical rivalry and still trade with one another and still invest in one another. And actually history and political science tell us that this is what happens in a multipolar world. However, military conflict still remains a problem, right, as a risk. I mean, look at Germany and the UK before 1914. Their trade increased right up until the day of uh, World War I. And so uh, those tensions are still there. And those are meaningful tensions of a rising power trying to carve out its sphere of influence and the status quo power trying to kind of limit its influence. And, And that's just the... That's just the world we live in today. So what I was saying in that particular analysis was that some of the emerging technologies in sustainability and alternative energy, which, of course, we all kind of welcome because they will resolve climate change. Ironically and paradoxically, there is an outcome here where they also allow countries like China, but also U.S. to become more energy independent. And that reduces constraints to conflict. Because if China or U.S. don't have to worry about international trade flows or access to commodities to fuel their economies, if they become more autarkic, which is mouthful, autarkic, they gain sovereignty and independence and can then decide to pursue, you know, foreign policy moves that could lead to conflict. It's it's a fascinating point. What I also find so interesting is how the focus of not just markets, but people who watch and pay attention to markets has changed. I mean, the past couple of years, it was all trade war, trade war, trade war, US, US-China relations. Then it switched a bit to the election. And now these days, it's all diamond hands into the moon, as you said earlier. So, so we'll see if, if the narrative and, and the focus does shift back under the new administration. But you know, Sarah, one of the reasons that happens is also because uh, something that's front and center becomes background noise. It becomes priced in. 
So in 2017, you know, uh, you walk into an office and you say, hey, China, U.S., serious problem. People are looking at you like, hmm, maybe, I don't know. What's Trump going to do? He's a deal maker. Don't worry about it. I mean, that's that was the consensus, right? Have you read The Art of War? Like, uh, or whatever. Did, is that the, what Art of the, deal? the Art the of the Deal? The Art of War is so, another book, but that oh, one was not written by President Trump. Trump did write that one? I'm pretty sure he claimed he did. No, I'm just no but you know, like, yeah, The Art of the Deal. You know, you got to read The Art of the Deal to figure it out. It's There's not going to be a trade war. Like, okay, thanks, Tips. You know, that's great. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> Um, but but what I'm getting at here is that I think what's happened, Sarah, is that a lot of this stuff has become uh, priced in in its background and investors can kind of look through it, which is, I think, in some ways appropriate. But then there's uh, there are issues that I think would alarm me and would say, you know, for example, uh, anything that has to do with Taiwan, I think would be a serious confrontation. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So, Marco, to, to sort of boil it all down to how how you would have uh, your clients or listeners sort of position themselves, uh, it sounds like for now, at least for the foreseeable future, it's kind of the the classic reflation trade that everyone's talking about. You know, uh, value over growth, uh, emerging markets, commodity produce, uh, producers, energy, uh, and and tips. I guess is is that sort of a, a safe kind of uh, summary of of how you would be positioning right now. Yes. And I think that over the next couple of months, there's going to be two narratives that will fight each other in the market. So the two narratives that I see battling it out is the growth differential narrative and the relative real yield. Let me explain what I mean. The dollar is so important to the story. For, for me to be bullish on everything you just listed, which I am, I also have to be a dollar bear. But it's so clear the U.S. is going to outperform in terms of global in terms of growth. I mean, we're looking at double-digit nominal growth this year, potentially. So how can you be a dollar bear? Well, you have to believe that growth differentials don't lead currencies. So what leads currencies? Well, I think that real yield differentials will lead currencies. And I think that in the U.S., we will have more localized inflation. We will have a very unorthodox fiscal and monetary policy to a greater degree than anywhere else in the developed world or in major economies. And so I think that that will pull dollar lower. And this is counterintuitive. For many investors, growth differential story has been the way they've traded currencies over the past of the past expansion. The, the old dollar, the dollar smile story. And, you know, on the, the one side with the U.S. outperforming. Right. And, and, and I, all I would say is that, remember, that worked when the central bank was orthodox, when it followed the precepts we learned in Econ 101. When basically the central bank will respond to higher inflation expectations, high growth expectations by becoming hawkish. If that's suddenly no longer the case, I think the relative real yield differential becomes the leading sort of uh, leading factor in currencies. And I think that there'll be a battle, Mike, over the next couple of months. Maybe my view will not win out in the next month or two. Maybe the dollar gets a little bit of a bump. 
It's at a critical juncture, 200 day moving average. You know, we're we're really now at this moment. And I think you'll have some really interesting guests and you'll be able to ask them which which camp they're in. Um, and it'll be interesting to see it play out. It is an interesting moment, and it seems like we are at a critical juncture when it comes to yields, both nominal and real, when it comes to the dollar and different areas of the market that are going to drive, whether you believe in the reflation trade or not, uh, going forwards. Um, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. And Mike, I know uh, you know what time it is this week. <laughs> it is that time. It is that time. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Uh, Charlie Pellet just told us what time it is. Um, so I got a couple too. Uh, I'm going to start with just this natural gas market, um, with everything that's going on in Texas. And I know I'm getting out of my specialty of the alternative asset space. No, there, but Art, that, no, um, Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson, or <laughs> I got something that's number two, but just, you know, to see in Oklahoma spot natty gas, go as high as $1,250 one day, back down to $4 per million BTU the next day, a 99% drop. I mean, it's all explainable with what's going on in Texas. And, the you know, they stopped allowing natural gas to leave Texas and, and just the, the demand from the power plants and everything else. But to me, still to see natty gas hit $1,250 spot out of Oklahoma and then back down the floor the next day. I, I, I haven't seen that. I guess we saw something crazier when oil went negative, but that, that to me was pretty wild. It's the opposite direction. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing. Okay. And I'll, I'll give you my second one while we're at it. Have you heard of these things, non-fungible tokens? So it's basically, you can put some piece of digital information on the blockchain. It's usually on, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so you have people making digital art, which obviously can be copied a million times. But if you put the original on the blockchain, there are people willing to, to pay a fortune for it. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, now, Sarah, and this is courtesy. We have, there's a good Bloomberg story on that. Uh, and it talks about how Christie is now accepting cryptocurrencies to buy this type of artwork. They're not accepting the premium, what they collect. That, you still have to pay that in dollars. But for the principal value of the art, they'll, they'll accept the crypto. Uh, Jeff Bilbro, one of our listeners, who's a very good source of crazy things, points out people are doing this with tweets now. So you can take your tweet, put it on the blockchain, and then sell it. So Mark Cuban did this. He sold a tweet uh, that said, basically, the store of value generation is kicking your butt and you don't even know it. He didn't say butt. He said a different word that I can't say on, on the podcast. And then he linked to his blog uh, with a blog post that I confess I haven't read. But you know what this time is, Sarah? It's time to play some prices right. What are you paying for Mark Cuban's tweet on the blockchain? You can own it forever. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a tough is, one. It's a tough is this one. In, is this in dollars? I, I'll give you one hint. Usually I, I bring these things up because they're outrageously high priced. Uh, this is in dollars. Uh, I, I would say this one. Well, I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder. It's still kind of outrageous to buy a tweet uh, would, at any price, I think. But what, what's your bid for a Mark Cuban tweet? Uh, let's go with 35000 35000 Marco, what are you bidding for a, a Mark Cuban well, given my market view, I'm just going to do 2x whatever Sarah says. 
<laughs> Good call. <laughs> Although she went high though, so I'm a little worried here. You're like a double double levered Ponzi there. The, the, <laughs> double levered Ponzi. I'm just doing everything you say. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Cuban's going to be happy to hear about you guys because he, he got a thousand bucks apparently for it. Oh, okay. Uh, for this tweet. You prefaced it by saying, you know, these things go absurdly high. So then I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be ridiculous. Every single time. This is <laughs> what happens. Say, I, this, this particular I, one is, is I, an outlier. Yeah. I really overthink it every <laughs> single time. And I was just locked into two axing. So I had no way to go away from that. I'm just I won, technically. And Sarah so. will tell you, I appreciate the two X, uh, your, your two X. Mike instinct. loves leverage. Ears, you know? like, Mike I, I, loves leverage. I, I appreciate the leveraged instinct on that. I will say Katie Greifeld filled in for you last week and she was willing to pay like 250,000 for a pair of Barack Obama basketball sneakers. So, uh, but by uh, the way, I just want to say, I, roller. I just want to say everyone here is just following what Wu-Tang did years ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wu-Tang released that album, like, you know, it was sold for 2 million bucks. Like, come on, you know, yeah. they, they need, they need a little shot out here. They did. Yeah. We appreciate that. That's all I got. Sarah, how about you? All right, so I'll just start with my favorite part of the week. I've got to say, so the GameStop hearing on Thursday, clearly the, the best part of it was when um, Roaring Kitty himself, in, in, in the light of the lawyer who had a cat face on <laughs> accidentally, <laughs> and that video went viral, he basically started his testimony by saying, I want a few up, clear up a few things. I am not a cat. And... Um, this is the best part of the week, but also just crazy that that was being said in the midst of a, of a hearing on Capitol Hill. You got to love it these days. But also, I just have a, a pretty classic one these days, a classic name mix up. So Clubhouse, which has become pretty popular these days, a lot of people using it to, to get conversation going, get people uh, to come on and listen to them, have a conversation. Well, there's a, a public company called Clubhouse Media Group, and they're a self-described marketing and media firm that does target social media influencers. And they actually changed their name just last month from Tongji Healthcare Group to promote its influencer and social media focus. So good timing because now that Clubhouse has become really, really popular, uh, Clubhouse Media Group shares have uh, surged over 1,000% in 2021 um, thanks to their name change. So just a classic name mix up. You've got to love this. They are those. like the Long Island uh, iced tea and blockchain. Long Island of, blockchain, of, yeah. Of 2021. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, I, I was hoping that uh, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, after uh, Ruin Kitty spoke, I was hoping he would say, he's not a cat and I am not Jackson Brown, no matter how much I look like Jackson Brown. And the fact my brokerage was running on empty. You're laughing politely. I know you don't. Yeah, you don't get any I, of those um, references, I think you, some more, more, more people believe that uh, Keith Gill and Vlad Tenev are actually the same person. I know. Uh, but <laughs> you should say I am not Roaring Kitty. Uh, Absolutely. I was, I was hoping they'd come back to Keith Gill with the actual, uh, zoom filter of a cat on his face at some point. <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> well, I have one for you guys. Uh, we, we're in the market. Let's hear it. All right. So um, I've been I've been just seeing so many like bubble, bubble, bubble comments everywhere. So what I did is I went to Google Trends and I charted, you know, the mentions of stock bubble. And I can now definitively claim that we are in an epic bubble of people calling this a stock bubble. <laughs> Just do it. You go to Google Trends, throw in stock bubble, and the chart that comes out is extraordinary. I mean, it is, I think, four times greater 
4x what it was at previous highs right now. Wow. So, so yeah. like 4x, I, I assume maybe a previous high was around... Well, I know Google Trends goes back to what's the first year? It doesn't go that far, um, yeah. but it does cover the nineties, and it's it's actually 2017, 18 was uh, was higher uh, was uh, the previous high, which we've been a, a great, but in a bubble for five years now. So right, and, and by the way, it's a great example too. Like it doesn't actually correlate. You can you can put it with an S and P five hundred chart and see if it had any real information, and it didn't really. But that's that's mine. That's uh, that's an interesting one. I didn't know how to like. It's a qualitative issue that a lot of people are throwing out. Uh, by but you can quantify it in Google Trends and take a look at the chart. Right. So, so it, it, if everyone thinks it's a bubble, is it impossible that it's a bubble? I mean, you can you can wrap your head in knots trying to figure out the contrarian take on <laughs> on that. Well, I mean, yeah, and it, it, it may very well be, but I think uh, we're at a point where I think this market segment will just. I think you guys will have plenty, plenty material for this. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're There's, right. It, it's almost hard to choose every week. Um, but I will say, Mike, it's time to pay up because Mike promised that if we got to 157 ratings on Apple Podcasts, Marco, that he would share his flattering high school nickname with us. Now, I'll say we're currently, the last I checked, we're around 172. We need to get to 200 for the embarrassing one. Um, so everyone, get to Apple Podcasts and I do. leave I, us some ratings. So, so we'll hear the best from Mike. In the meantime, I remembered I had a few other nicknames. I could do like a structured product out of this. If we get, <laughs> if we get, if we get to 250, I'll tell you, I will reveal the most embarrassing nickname I ever had, which my older brothers gave to me when I was when I was very young. But for 157, you only get the flattering nickname. And that was Sarah. Uh, most of my nicknames were uh, awarded to me on the basketball court. And I don't have an impressive basketball resume. I, I played a lot, but pretty, pretty mediocre lifetime stats. But if you were able to compress it to one highlight reel, I, I'm telling you, it's it's pure fire. <laughs> I mean, it exists only in my imagination because there were no video cameras on me at any time uh, when I was playing. But uh, on one playground court in the late 80s in suburban Pennsylvania, I'll set the stage for you here. This is like Hoosiers. <laughs> I was just on fire. I don't know what what became of me, but I, I was just killing it. And for every pickup basketball game, there's always one guy who's just kind of like talking trash the whole team against the, uh, against the other team. So he was just kind of giving the play by play of my performance. You know, I was going coast to coast, laying it up. And he, he kept saying, Regan's on a mission. Regan's on a mission. It's a Regan mission. And then that turned into it's a recon mission, a recon. So to this day, I, a bunch of guys from high school still call me recon is, is the nickname. I know that's it's disappointing, but that's what you get for only 157 ratings. No, it, it's a good one. And it's it just recon. means that we'll have to have more ratings. I'll also read. This was a great rating that we got from Brick Brack. Been listening to this since it began. I love it. In parentheses. I don't usually write reviews, but we need to hear Mike's nicknames. So we need to get more <laughs> so we can hear the embarrassing Listen, guys. I, I'm sure that uh, you'll get the poppage bump after this. So like, I'm, I'm guaranteeing it. By the, way, by the way, Mike, listen, we could we could go for like 20 minutes of like really, really not that impressive basketball stories. But in your minds, yeah, that's all that matters. Minds. That's all Sarah's that matters. Sleep, though. All right, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. I uh, like basketball. All right, well, <laughs> all right, Marco, since you spoke up, we need one nickname out of you. I know you had one growing up sometime. You know, um, my last name is like very nicknameable. So right. that's what I, I was just, thinking. 
you know, it was just like Papa. That was like just the easy thing. And also I find, I find that uh, like Anglophones find it really awesome. So they just call me by my last name. Right, right. That's that. That's really all it is. And most yeah. of my basketball stories involve like backdoor screens and giving people whiplash. So <laughs> I don't. There, there, there was nothing as cool as recon. <laughs> all right, so uh, recon, Papa, and Ponzi. <laughs> quite the uh, quite the motley crew we've got going on right now. Um, but next time. We will get the other nickname out of Mike. I believe in everyone to go and rate the show. Uh, But Marco, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on this week. It's been a great time. And thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reg Anonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.